Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Fifty years ago, the Manhattan Project of Money Management was quietly assembled in the financial industry's backwaters, unified by the heretical idea that even many of the world's finest investors could not beat the market in the long run. A motley crew of nerds, including economist Wunderkind Jean Fama, humiliated industry executive Jack Bogle, bullheaded and computer-obsessive John McQuown, and avuncular former World War II submariner Nate Most succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. Passive investing now accounts for more than $26 trillion, higher than the entire gross domestic product of the U.S. And uh, the new book is Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and uh, Changed uh, Markets Forever. Robin Wig- Wigglesworth is uh, the author um, and uh, he is a global finance correspondent for the at the Financial Times. He focuses on the biggest trends reshaping markets, investing in finance more broadly across the world, uh, and writing longer-form features, analyses, profiles, and columns. Before joining the Financial Times in 2008, he worked at Bloomberg News. Robin Wigglesworth, uh, thank you for joining us today on the program. Yeah, thanks, sir. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, so, uh, for I think myself, most of our audience, uh, you know, we're not financial experts. Uh, we're talking about index funds here, uh, which you know you might think oh, it's pretty boring, but there's there's a fascinating history here. And and uh, I just mentioned uh, just a few of the very very colorful characters. We're going to be talking about them, but maybe uh, just refresh our memories: index funds versus hedge funds versus mutual funds. What are we talking about here? Index funds. Well, so most people have, for let's say most of the last century, saved money through mutual funds. So they're professional fund managers at big places like Fidelity or Capital Group, who's got the American funds or T. Rowe Price. And that is essentially a group of portfolio managers, they're calling the industry, but fund managers who uh, work with lots of traders and analysts and lawyers and accountants to try and find the best stocks in the world or in the U.S. stock market or maybe the best bonds. But they try to beat the market. They try to be better. Uh, and that's how things have been for a long time. Obviously, not everybody can be better than the market, uh, but that's all there was. Until people in the 60s and 70s, some of these heretics I write about, you know, managed to show quantitatively using these newfangled things called computers that actually, yes, stock are a really good bet in the long run. But no, most professional fund managers actually do a pretty miserable job of beating the market, and they charge a lot of money for doing that poor job. So they together, there's basically a bunch of financial academics, uh, people like Gene Farmer, Merton Miller, Bill Sharp, Harry Markowitz, many of which went on to win Nobel Prizes, and a few financial heretics that worked in the finance industry as practitioners but wanted to do something new, something better, essentially. Uh, and together, they invented the first index funds, or the first two, three index funds back in the early 70s. Just as an aside, maybe parenthetically, um, it, it hasn't been, it's my vague impression, it hasn't been all that long since you know, you and I, just uh, regular folks, have been in the market. Was, was it uh, was it specialized at a certain point, and then everybody got in through mutual funds or whatever? Well, it's it's waxed and waned throughout history. I mean, if you go back maybe some two, three centuries, there were the first sort of uh, collected investment trusts, though typical trusts that pooled saving vehicles in the Netherlands and the United Kingdom, England at the time, because they were commercial centers of the world, if you go back a few centuries. Uh, but eventually, you know, things have evolved, and the mutual fund, as we know it today, was invented and was birthed in the U.S., in Massachusetts, uh, almost a century ago now. And that has slowly but surely become dominant in the world. So there are many other forms of investment vehicles hedge funds being one, uh, hedge funds are people that don't just best buy a stock. They can actually short and bet on it falling as well. They invest in many different things and take very many 
different strategies, particularly are riskier than mutual funds and therefore hope to generate higher returns. Um, but broadly speaking, there's 40 trillion in mutual funds and only 4 trillion in um, hedge funds today. Index funds kind of was are a slow burner. It was a slow hit, not an overnight hit. It first started taking off among pension plans because they could see that, you know, they were investing in maybe 50, 60, 100 different fund managers across America. And obviously, you realize they were just employing a lot of really expensive people who were essentially doing nothing but swapping pieces of paper. So if you're at AT&T and they had a fund manager who was selling AT&T stock, maybe another fund manager they invested in was buying AT&T stock. So it all cancel itself out except for the trading costs. So they embrace indexing first. But ordinary investors, people like you and me, that only really started in the 90s, and it's really only in the last decade that it's really kind of exploded. So that's when it's gone from, you know, interesting phenomenon, big trend, to being something that makes people step back and think, holy cow, this is taking over markets completely now. Well, maybe expand on that. Um, the, you, you, you know, you say in the book, index funds might seem dowdy next to you know the big hedge funds or the private equity equity houses, but they represent one of the most disruptive inventions in the history of investing, um, and it's has gotten very, very big. Uh, maybe establish some of the parameters there. How how big has it gotten? Well, so of what what we know is there's around seventeen trillion dollars in official index funds in some inverted commas. So those are the public universe of registered, publicly registered investment funds uh, and exchange-traded funds. Uh, But there are a lot of big investors, whether a sovereign wealth fund in Kuwait or Saudi Arabia or China or big pension plans like CalPERS and CalSTRS or endowments like Harvard or MIT or, or even a big private bank in Geneva that can actually do this in-house. They don't need to pay a BlackRock or a Vanguard to run an index fund. They just do it in-house. And how much money is in those kind of internal index strategies, they're not technically funds, they're just strategies, is hard to know. But I found some various data sources and sanity checked it. And I calculate that in total, we're talking about at least $26 trillion globally. There is a colossal amount of money, and it's important to remember that it's not so long ago that we were still only talking in, you know, a few trillion dollars, as it were. It's in the last 10, 15 years that the passive investing phenomenon has just entered a whole new level. Uh, To the point, and I want to loop back and get the history here, which is just fascinating, but maybe we can treat right here the... Mm. The controversy this 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 is uh, you know there there are some people pushing back on this idea that uh, index funds the the so-called big three are 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 just getting too big too powerful. Exactly. Well, I mean, there's always been a backlash. I mean, it won't surprise you to learn that the investment industry in Wall Street itself has always hated index funds. I mean, they really, really hate it, and they've never loved it, because essentially this is somebody coming around and saying, actually, by being lazy, I can do better than you, no matter how hard you work. So it's a direct assault both on their pride and their compensation. Uh, The cheapness of index funds has lowered the cost of mutual funds and hedge funds by a third over the past few decades. So even if hedge funds aren't necessarily in direct competition with index funds, they're so cheap that they kind of they exert this gravitational pull downwards on the cost of all investment fees. And naturally, you know, the finance industry does not like a pressure on fees at all. So that's why it's been a, a good thing. Uh, the downside is that uh, the economics of scale of indexing means that the big just become bigger. Because there's no difference between an index fund or let's say an S&P 500 index fund run by Vanguard and BlackRock, you just go to the cheapest one. And the bigger it is, the cheaper it is to run. Because essentially, you just need a few algorithms and a few accountants. So the bigger you are, the cheaper you can sell the fund and the more investor money you get. So they become bigger and bigger until there might become a scenario where 
the big three in the industry, BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard, are already titanic, that they will become utterly dominant over the entire global investment industry. That is something that I think should worry us a little bit. Uh, there are some who say that uh, passive investing is leading to uh, a crisis in corporate governance. Uh, t- tell us about that. Well, it's it's the idea that you know passive investors are passive owners. That the entire sort of market-oriented capitalist system is built up around the idea that you, as an owner, are responsible for making sure your companies run well. If you're a shareholder in a big company like Apple, even, you might not have much of a say, but you have a vote. And you can vote to hire and fire people on the board and how it's run. And the concern has been that passive investment funds, because essentially they can never sell a stock, they're just going to be sitting there forever, no matter what happens, that they didn't care about corporate governance, that index funds would essentially lead to lazy lawful management that wastes money. Now, I think in practice, that doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. Uh, but it's something that's definitely stung a lot of investment funds, passive investment funds like BlackRock and Vanguard, to get to grips more with corporate governance in recent years and really increase their stewardship teams, they call them. Essentially, these are people that sit inside the big investment groups and work as shareholders to find out how they're going to vote in various uh, ways on corporate General, annual general meetings. Uh, the thing is, of course, now they're facing a backlash both for doing too much and doing too little. So some people think that investment funds, and especially BlackRock and Vanguard, should be playing a far more aggressive role in fighting climate change, that this is the, the, the battle of a generation and they need to play their part. They need to force all the companies that they insure in to get their act together. On the other hand, a lot of other people think that, actually, you know, that's crazy. You know, this is just woke capitalism, as, as Marco Rubio calls it. Uh, and it's foolish and it should never be done. I tend to be certainly not of the, they shouldn't do anything. But I don't think that we should be pushing public policy issues over to corporate governance arenas. You know, BlackRock should not be deciding these things. It shouldn't have to decide these things. Elected politicians should be making these decisions, uh, not people that work at BlackRock and Vanguard. But, I mean, this is, there's a lot of controversy around this, and it's going to rumble and rumble, I think, for the next few years. One, of the, one last thing on, on this, uh, you know, concerns about concentration of uh, wealth and power in these essentially two companies. Um, one uh, concern is concentration of power. One professor raised the possibility that a majority of public companies might eventually be controlled by just a dozen people. Is that uh, a concern you share? Yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's exactly it. I, mean, I tend to think that we, we shouldn't go too crazy about being a panic about this. I mean, broadly speaking, this is almost joking away, it's almost like a benevolent oligopoly right now that actually we benefit from their size in form of lower fees. So most times when we worry about like certain companies becoming too big, we worry about anti-competitive or anti-consumer moves. And that is not really the risk here. It's more this more intangible concern that size and gigantism and power is not something that should be overly concentrated, and certainly not overly concentrated in private sector companies. So John Coates, who's a professor at Harvard Law, has written a a very interesting paper on this. He calls it the power of 12, that the idea, the problem of 12, sorry, the idea that in the foreseeable future, not in some fantastical faraway future, but in the foreseeable future of the next 10, 20, 30 years, that just a dozen people will enjoy effective control over swaths of America's biggest companies. And that is something he calls, you know, a massive uh, uh, concern. And even Jack Bogle, who founded Vanguard, admitted before he passed away that he thought that such a concentration would not be in the national interest. What do, uh, I want to treat this then right now. What, what could be done to slow or stop that? 
Not much, unfortunately, because it's just the, the forces of, of competitiveness. Um, BlackRock and Vanguard are cheaper than their rivals in many respects. They have better service than their rivals. So they grow quicker. And the more they grow, the cheaper they can become in, to a large extent. And I, I think we might be at a point where maybe something unexpected happens that, you know, one of those companies or other companies lose their way. And, you know, we've seen it many times. Companies that look utterly dominant in the industry who suffer a slow or, or dramatic decline. Uh, I don't foresee that for BlackRock and Vanguard. And that's why I think at some point we do need to think about how we curtail how they exercise that power. So BlackRock, to their credit, has already started saying we're going to be trying, starting to hand back, where possible, some of the voting power to our actual investors. Because, after all, they are the ones that own the shares. They are an asset manager, as the industry jargon goes, not an asset owner. So they want to say, look, we get that people are concerned about this. We are also think that this could be an issue. Therefore, we are trying to give some of that power away. And I think Vanguard will be amenable to that as well, and maybe that's all it takes. But I think at some point it is something that needs to have a – requires a, a proper debate, and probably among elected politicians and less for grandstanding and more for thorny, ephemeral, but important reasons like do we feel comfortable with these companies having such enormous sway over large parts of the economy? You point out in the book, we'll do, want to get into, after we take a break, uh, talking about some of these fascinating uh, personalities. Uh, you point out that uh, one indication of the extreme power of uh, these companies is the fact that uh, the president of, uh, I'm not sure what his title is, the, the head of uh, BlackRock, uh, he's known by one name, right? He, he's not Larry Fink, he's Larry. You say Larry, mm. <laughs> and that, everybody knows that's who yeah. you mean. No, as far as I'd say, there's probably only three people that really just go by first names. Uh, it's Larry, Ken, and Jamie. So Jamie being Jamie Diamond, the CEO of, of J.P. Morgan, and Ken Griffin being uh, the CEO of Citadel, a, a giant hedge fund, and he also owns a big trading firm called Citadel Securities. But Larry, I'd argue, uh, is you know, king of the roost. He's not the richest. Both. Uh, Ken Griffin and quite a lot of other titans of finance are far richer than, than, than Larry Fink. But Larry Fink has power and influence. He moves around the world. He's a mover and shaker. This is the, the quintessential Davos man. And um, you really see that in BlackRock's heft and how people look at his annual letter. So I work at the Financial Times. That's my day job. And we care about what Jamie Dimon says in his annual letter, but we don't write about it all the time. But what Larry Fink writes in his annual letter to CEOs, his public open letter, that matters. People care about that. And that's raw power, I feel. That's influence. And nobody has more of that in the financial world today than Larry Fink. Just joined us. So we're, you're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. I'm talking with Robin Wigglesworth. He's global financial correspondent uh, at the Financial Times, and he's out with a new book. It's called Trillions: How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. We'll uh, take a short break. Hope you're enjoying this uh, conversation with Robin Wigglesworth. Recorded this uh, last week. I uh, just wanted to mention an upcoming event. Um, Andy Larson, you probably read him in the Salt Lake Tribune. He's the Utah Jazz and NBA beat writer. Uh, so he might seem an unlikely candidate for scientific data interpreter. But uh, his regular column during the pandemic detailing the spread of COVID-19 and its variants, masking controversies, social distancing, vaccines, and boosters has become a pandemic-era must-read staple. Nandy Larson is coming to Utah State University for an event on Thursday. He's the featured speaker for the USU Department of Mathematics and Statistics Colloquium Series. His talk will be titled, Making Data Work, How to Turn Numbers into Knowledge. That's Thursday, 3.30 p.m. in the Eccles Conference Center, rooms 311 through 313. It'll also be broadcast via Zoom, and you can get the link there by just uh, searching USU Andy Larson. I mention this because it's an interesting event uh, and because Andy Larson will be on with us here on the program next week.
This is Katie Swain, and I'm happy to report that thanks to your generous support, we've raised $55,000 from your membership contributions this fall. We're incredibly grateful to the hundreds of you who gave. Your support helps make UPR's important service and local journalism continue. And it also allows for exciting new projects to happen as well. We came into the fall with a goal of growth, and we're thrilled to have achieved that throughout our fall member drive and in the weeks to follow. We're excited for the future because listeners like you help fund the work. One of the most distinctive voices in civil rights history reemerges to tell his own story. Remember me? Remember me running around town with a black beret on my head, black leather jacket on? I must have looked like a combination between Rambo and Shaft. <laughs> Roger Genver Smith stars in a Huey P. Newton story next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. Billy Joe Johnson was a son. He started walking when he was nine months old. A friend. You can't compare no matter to Billy. And a star football player. Everybody looks like they're running in slow motion except one guy, Billy Joe. His death is the story of what justice means in America on the next Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we're talking with Robin Wigglesworth. He's global finance correspondent at the Financial Times. His newest book is Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance uh, Forever. And uh, in the book, uh, he, uh, he argues that index funds may seem dowdy next to titanic hedge funds and imperious private equity houses, Yet they represent one of the most disruptive inventions in the history of investing, subtly altering the fabric of the financial system. And uh, we are uh, spending the hour with Robin Wigglesworth uh, today. Before we jump into some of these fascinating outsized personalities that you write about in in the book, um, I want to talk about this this idea that's heretical at the time that over time... Um, you know, just following the market, indexing to to the market itself as a whole, uh, you can do better there than with a so-called you know pricey, talented manager. Uh, I, but it is the key phrase there over time. You, there's still money to be made if uh, you know there are a lot of day traders out there, but not even day traders. But uh, you know, shorter periods of time, uh, could you make more money uh, with somebody who's extremely talented? Uh, you know, on a shorter period of time, given, you know, stipulating the fact that over time, uh, you know, the market's probably going to outperform just about any manager. No, it's a great point. Over time is, is very much the, the crucial qualifier here. Uh, but I don't think that that follows necessarily that you can always find somebody who's going to do well over shorter time periods either. Because, Imagine that Warren Buffett, the, the the Oracle of Omaha, he once you know compared it to um, a coin flipping contest. That you know, if you have enough people flipping coins, let's say if you have a million people, there's going to be a few hundred that flip heads ten times in a row. That doesn't mean they're expert coin flippers. It just means that the law of probability meant that there would be a few that did it. In the same way, if you have a millions of people day trading hundreds of thousands of mutual fund managers and hedge fund managers and so on, you know, some of them are going to do well, not just over a few days or months or years, but maybe even over a decade or two. The problem is just hard, very hard to predict who that's going to be ahead of time. And even when you do find some of these people, there are people, I, I tend to, I'm, I'm not a, what some people call a passion jihadist. I think it is possible, theoretically possible, for people to beat markets in the short and long run, but they're very rare. They tend to be, you know, very specialized hedge fund managers in very specific areas, and they tend to not manage any or much outside money, and they charge an absolute fortune. So they're not the people open to you and me. They're sort of the Ken Griffins of the world. And should you invest in somebody thinking, well, this person, she might do a really good job over the next year? Probably not, because timing markets is really hard. Even the pros that think you can beat markets say that timing markets is exceptionally difficult. 
I mean, there are all sorts of stories about people that, for example, realized there was a dot-com bubble in the late 90s, but basically got out of the market too early, cost their investors millions, and lost their jobs. And it just goes to show that markets are really it is hard to predict. So I'd be wary of trying to find somebody you think can do well in the short run. And I'd certainly be wary of, of trying to trade myself. And there's this great study in um, Brazil, one of the more comprehensive studies of day traders I've ever seen. They found that something that uh, 97% of those are traded almost daily across three years in the study lost all their money. Only 1.1% of those thousands of Brazilian retail traders that they studied made as much money as they would have made doing a minimum wage job at McDonald's. And only 0.5% made more than the entry-level bank, bank clerk would have. So right now, you know, trading money, finding a hot new firm like Arc Cathy Woods has been doing fantastically well lately. It sounds more fun. It's just more interesting. It's more exciting. But index funds are unambiguously the way to go for the vast majority of humans in the long run. And that's the long run is where we should be saving money. But if you want to gamble, then, yeah, I'd put money on, on football or the horses or, or stocks for that matter. And, of course, most of us are you know, not in the market to gamble. We're, we're in the market for our retirement, right? Uh, um, exactly. Uh, so uh, that brings me to, you know, not that people would come to Access Utah for for investing advice, but, um, you know, we're, we're probably, most of us are, a lot of us don't know exactly where we are. We know we're in the market, right? We're in the mutual fund or maybe we're in an index. Yeah. Uh, but as we're thinking about this, uh, I mean, the advice I always hear is diversify. Is that still good advice? Oh, completely. Diversify and keep costs low. And... You might get unlucky, but chances are you're going to end up fine then. Save enough money, diversify, and do it as cheaply as humanly possible, and chances are you'll be golden by the time the retirement date comes around. And, and it is, it's I mean... to be lazy when you invest. Be lazy when you... Yeah, I guess index funds is a good way to do that. Um, um, yeah. Talk about keeping costs low... I think it was Warren Buffett that he, he gave an estimate. Uh, let me read this. Uh, index funds have saved ordinary investors tens of billions of dollars in fees that otherwise would go into the pockets of the finance industry. Uh, you said earlier in the program, uh, you know, Wall Street really hates uh, index funds. Lower fees. Yeah. Well, this is exactly it. I mean, I've actually seen a study that quantified what the, the point that Buffett was trying to make, that just based purely on the fees... Investors in American index funds have, over the past 25 years, saved $357 billion. That's just the direct fee cost, the difference between the cost of an index fund and an active fund. And that doesn't even include the fact that in that 25-year period, index funds would have trounced probably something like 95 to 100% of all active funds. And then it's just the, the pressure that brings on all fees. The average cost of a mutual fund, an actively managed traditional mutual fund in the United States, has dropped by a third over the past two, three decades. And that's thanks to index funds. So, you know, Wall Street has not come up with a lot of inventions that I'd un- call an unambiguous positive for humankind, but the index fund is one of them. Well, I've been uh, teasing this. Uh, de- definitely part of the, a big part of the book is uh, these fascinating, fascinating people. Uh, so I want to start with uh, Louis Bachelier. Did I pronounce that correctly? Tell me, uh, tell me about him. No, I mean I, th- I think that's uh, that's right. Even though my French is pretty poor as well. Now, he was a, a obscure French mathematician. He died unknown, virtually, um, but he had a fantastically interesting life. He was uh, the heir of a vintner uh, business that he inherited too early. He was studying mathematics in the Sorbonne, but when his parents died, he had to run the business at 18 and take care of his younger siblings. And then when he finally got the business back on strike footing, uh, war broke out, so he got conscripted in the French army, and he belatedly made it to the Sorbonne in 1990, uh, 1900. 
but he uh, didn't have the means that many of his fellow students had at the time. So he had to work part-time at the Paris Stock Exchange. And he got, became really interested in, in how share prices moved. And he wrote his PhD thesis on this. And at the time, finance was grubby. I mean, somewhat grubby today, but it certainly was you know, 100 years ago and in Paris and in you know, the Sorbonne's mathematics department. It was considered a little bit crass as a subject. Um, but that, that PhD thesis called The Theory of Speculation is the wellspring from where all financial mathematics has flowed. So he showed for the first time mathematically how stocks move randomly and how you can sort of try to calculate that and talked about how the market was, and he didn't use the word, but it's basically efficient. He pointed out quite logically that for every person that buys a stock, somebody sold it to him. And presumably both of them think they made a good deal. So we can assume that at any given time, the price of any stock or the market as a whole is roughly where people think is fair. And as obviously more information flows in, that gets pounded into the price of the market. So the market is efficient, as one of his indirect protégés, Gene Farmer, later coined. So his work, Bachelier's work, was only later rediscovered in the 50s when, you know, essentially Paul Samuelson, the, the, the granddaddy of, of U.S. economics, so his textbook is still the textbook that people read when they study economics today, um, and the first American to win the Nobel Laureate in economics, he discovered this PhD thesis by chance, and he helped popularize it and bring it into the, to the lifeblood of U.S. economics at the time. And then later on, we had a lot of economists that all came together and turned this into a fully-fledged theory for how markets work and the establishment of the first index funds. By the way, at a certain point, uh, academics got involved in uh, studying uh, how market managers work, right, and and, and yeah. pr- proving that you know markets will beat most managers over time. Exactly. Well, for a long time, people didn't have benchmarks. So these indices that I talked about, you know, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is really old, but everybody knew that doesn't measure the entire U.S. stock market. So it sounds incredible to us today. But in the 50s and 60s, people didn't know what the returns of the U.S. stock market was in the long run. They might know what the Dow Jones had done, but even that, you didn't have that much historical data. This was all written on paper. This is the pre-digital era. But in the 1960s, the mid-1960s, Merrill Lynch wanted to start like selling stocks to people. They had printed out these big ads saying, stocks are an amazing investment opportunity for ordinary people. And the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, said, no, hang on, buddy. You can't say that unless you can prove that stocks are a good long-term investment. So Merrill Lynch went to the University of Chicago, handed over a big bag of money and said, prove what we want you to prove, essentially. And the project was led by a guy called Jim Laurie. And he enlisted a colleague of his that was really computer savvy. And they painstakingly through, I think it was four years in total, piece together the price of every single stock in American history that they could find, from old barons, newspapers, uh, Wall Street Journal, and so on, so they could basically map out what the long-term return on stocks was. And lo and behold, they found out that it was way better than bonds. In fact, it was around 7 to 10%, depending on what time period you looked at. But the long-term return of stocks in the United States was very positive. But what they were also able to show was that actually most fund managers did a poor job because before then, nobody had really a way of measuring how well fund managers did. So your fund manager might say, oh, I made 20% last year. And you might not just actually know that the overall U.S. stock market made 40% last year. So your fund manager did worse than the market. All you saw, well, 20%, that sounds great. So you might lose 20% the next year, and you might not realize the market was down 30%, for example. So in the 60s, this finally became apparent, and uh, the industry hated it. But that was when people decided, well, how about we create an index of funds that just tracks the entire stock market and does nothing more than that? 
And the people at Wells Fargo were the first people. They were inspired by the work that Jim Laurie did at the University of Chicago. They enlisted you know, absolute rock star cast of economists to consult for them. And led by a guy called John Mac McQuown, they invented the very first index fund. And uh, the, these disruptive innovations are, you know, they're heretical, looked down upon until they become wildly successful. I, you know, uh, it's always the history, I think. No, exactly. Um, no, it's very true. I mean, nobody likes disruption. I think incumbents don't like disruption, right? Yeah, certainly true. Let's take another break. When we come back, I wanted uh, to learn about uh, another uh, two or three of these uh, fascinating, fascinating figures in the book. Um, the book is Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades invested, Invented the Index Fund and Changed uh, Finance Forever. Robin Wigglesworth is the author, and he is with the Financial Times. Uh, the book is out and available uh, now. Let's uh, take a brief break. You're listening to Access Utah, and I just want to tell you about a program coming up next week. Uh, Andy Larson writes for the Salt Lake Tribune. He's the Utah Jazz and NBA beat writer. Uh, So he's an unlikely candidate for scientific data interpreter, but that's exactly during the pandemic what he became. You probably read his regular column uh, detailing with COVID-19, masking controversies, social distancing, vaccines, and boosters. And uh, he'll be on with us next week, as I mentioned. Wanted to mention an event he's appearing at this week, uh, though, ahead of that. Uh, He will be speaking, Andy Larson will be speaking at Utah State University on Thursday. The title of his talk, Making Data Work, How to Turn Numbers into Knowledge. And he'll uh, be speaking for the USU Department of Mathematics and Statistics, part of their colloquium series. So that uh, talk is Thursday, 3.30 p.m. in the Eccles Conference Center, rooms 311 through 313. Uh, but if you're not in the Logan area, this will also be broadcast via Zoom. So you can uh, go to the post I'm reading from, which will give you the Zoom link. Uh, just uh, search for USU and Andy Larson. Uh, I wanted to give you that heads up on the event and on that program next week. Utah Public Radio is seeking a full-time news director, and it could be you. It's a great opportunity to lead a team of motivated reporters serving UPR's statewide audience. The job features a competitive salary with excellent Utah State University benefits. For more information on this position and how to apply, visit upr.org. That's upr.org. The West's relationship with water is complicated, and it's only getting more complex. Last year was considerably dry. Maybe the driest we'd seen, and now we're looking at even drier. I think it's been described as a slow-moving train wreck. I'm Alex Hager, reporting on the water issues that define the Western U.S. Listen for stories about the Colorado River Basin on Utah Public Radio. We're back with Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Robin Wigglesworth, uh, who is uh, with the Financial Times. Uh, He is out with a new book. It's a fascinating book, Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund um, and uh, Changed Finance Forever. Um, So I want to skip a bit ahead. I, I... can't let this interview end without having you talk about Jack Bogle, uh, just an incredibly fascinating figure. Tell me a bit about him. Well, I feel even though he's fairly well-known, I I think people don't realize just how fascinating he was. Uh, I think he he was even more fascinating than even he himself let on. Um, I mean, today he's very much known rightly as the titan of the investment industry. One of the greatest leaders corporate America has ever had. He really did God's work in proselytizing for index funds. He founded Vanguard, which is now an $8 trillion investment group, and built it on cheap, low-cost funds and largely index funds for ordinary Americans. So, you know, if that doesn't deserve applause, I don't know what does. Uh, but he also was quite keen on, on polishing the legend of St. Jack, as he became known. Um, and there are some sort of curves around his life that he, he often quite laughed off uh, or, or, or defended by saying, by quoting uh, um, Milton Keynes, who said, what said when he changed his mind, he said, well, the facts change, I changed my mind. What do you do, sir? And that was Jack Bogle. You know, he had 
immensely strong opinions, but he was willing to change those opinions when confronted by reality. So he, you know, fascinating life. He grew up initially, he was born into a family with great wealth, um, and is a wealthy you know, Philadelphia family, and um, then essentially the family was impoverished by the Great Depression, and his father essentially drank the rest of the money away. So he had to eventually live in a tiny house with his mother and his, his twin brother and his older brother, and, you know, felt, felt that fall from grace quite acutely. Quite a lot of people I talked to talked about that, you know, Jack Bogle was somebody who had a better chip on his shoulder. But it did fire up an enormous drive in him. He was incredibly competitive. So he excelled at school. He went to, you know, like a, 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 all the school that he, he managed to, his mother managed to talk him into, ended up at Princeton. At Princeton, he stumbled across an article in Fortune talking about this newfangled thing called the Mutual Fund. And he thought, well, that sounds pretty cool. And wrote a thesis about it that actually came to the attention of uh, the CEO of Wellington. Um, and he was hired. And from there, he was the wonder boy of the industry until he suddenly um, did a really stupid thing in the boom of the 1960s, the go-go years. It was kind of the first dot-com bubble. So this was when IBM and Xerox, Kodak were the hot, sexy tech stocks. And he merged with a slightly more glamorous investment outfit out in Boston. And when the markets turned and they did terribly, his Earthwell founders, uh, partners, essentially ousted him in a boardroom coup. And then he founded Vanguard and decided to turn it into a vehicle for his essentially revenge against the people that did fire him. Yeah, the interesting part of that, um, motivation was, I don't know, what you, revenge or whatever, right? He felt he'd been unjustly ousted, but he, he uh, managed to, as a consolation prize, right, to put himself in charge of kind of this paper company, right? And the, 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 uh, all they really could do is passive investing. So that's how he got into that? Yeah. That's exactly it. So later on in life, he pretended that he always loved passive investing, but that's just not true. I mean, he wrote pseudonymous articles uh, ridiculing the idea of passive investing when he was at Wellington. But when he was at Vanguard, which was, yes, it was just an administrative job that he got dumped into, uh, as a, almost as a consolation prize after he got sacked by Wellington. The, the board of the Wellington funds decided they wanted to give him doing a solid. So they let him set up a company that would do all the administrative work for the Wellington funds itself. He named it Vanguard, which is obviously a very grand name for a clerical company. Um, and they were not allowed to do anything other than clerical work. They weren't allowed to do investment management. But then he read about index funds. And Paul Samuelson, who was always banging the drum about this, wrote about a piece of paper about this, how fund managers did a terrible job. And Bogle, who's a brilliant, brilliant man, realized this was the opening he needed. He went to the board of Vanguard, the, the Wellington board, as it were, the fund board, and said, look, we're not going to manage money. This is an unmanaged fund. It's a passive fund. There's no management involved at all. And incredibly, they said yes to it. They felt, yeah, that's fine, let them do it. And he was an utter failure. But it was part of Jack Bogle's attempt to get out from under the thumb of his former partners uh, up in Boston that had taken over Wellington in the meantime. So he did become a huge zealot for index funds later on, but most of the people I know him from you know, the 60s and 70s all say very clear that like, he was not always a supporter. He became a supporter first because of circumstance and later because the facts changed and you could see that this was superior, this worked. And he was always an adherent to low-cost investing. He's a big believer in the cost-matters hypothesis. And therefore, Vanguard was the perfect vehicle for that. And he did, in the end, teach his former partners quite the lesson. It's it's fascinating. You know what? You might think, oh, it's a, it's a book on finance, right? Um, but uh, 
you know, finance is driven by humans. And this is a this is an example. It's a human drama, right? With <laughs> all all the colors in the palette there. Fascinating. Um, no, exactly. Uh, so, uh, just a couple minutes left. I want to have you talk a little bit more about Larry Fink. Um, who and uh, there's there's a link here. He he was a wunderkind, right? He was a rising star, uh, headed toward CEO of a of a prestigious firm. Then he suffered a humiliating loss, and that uh, that was a motivation for him uh, to, to ended up greater heights. No, I think there's something in common with in the biographies of a lot of great men and women I've written and talked to uh, that actually some sort of massive personal or professional setback that they managed to, through sheer force of will, bounce back from is is quite common actually. And Larry Fink had, I mean, it's very different from from Bogle, but in many ways similar. So Bogle was the wonder boy of the investment industry. He was the youngest. Senior Vice President of Wellington, he took over one of this was one of America's big mutual fund companies at the time when he was incredibly young. When he was in his early thirties, he basically was running the place, and then he suffered a humiliating fall from grace. And Larry Fink, a little bit similar, kind of ended up in finance by chance. Didn't know quite what to do, but you know, this was the late seventies, early eighties. So if you want to make a bit of money, you went to Wall Street. He ended up trading bonds and just proved an absolute natural at it. He was the rock star at First Boston at the time. So it was later subsumed by Credit Suisse. But this was you know, one of the most pedigreed firms on the Wall Street. And Larry Fink was the golden boy. He was the crown prince. He was the youngest managing director. He became the youngest person on the management committee. And people thought he was a surefire shot to be the CEO at some point. Until suddenly... He, he and his team lost a cool $100 million in one basically terrible week or a couple of weeks, essentially. And he just humiliated. And he went from, you know, the way he put it to me, he went from some CEO waiting to leper in the firm. You know, Wall Street loves success and it hates failure. And you reward success and it really lambasts failure. And suddenly he went from success to failure. And I think that really ignited the fire that was always in Fink in the same way that Bogle's firing from Wellington ignited the fire in his belly as well. That helps explain why they became the people they were, really. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Uh, Many other fascinating figures, you'll have to go to the book and read uh, about them. Uh, on in this book, it's called Trillions: How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund and Changed Finance Forever. The author is Robin Wigglesworth, who is global finance correspondent at the Financial Times, and uh, the book is out and available. It's called Trillions. The author is Robin Wigglesworth. Uh, Robin Wigglesworth, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. No, Tom, thanks so much, and thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Out in Utah's West Desert is a massive $60 million infrastructure project that hasn't been used in over 30 years. Can you guess what it is and why it was made? Find out today after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In the 1980s, a flooding Great Salt Lake threatened transportation industry and the economy in Utah. Under the leadership of Utah Governor Norm Bangader, the emergency was solved by installing three huge pumps on the lake's western shore that would pull water away from urban areas out to the desert to evaporate. After only two years of use, the pumps were mothballed. 30 years later, this $60 million project still sits out in the west desert, waiting for another flood. In 1982, after one of the strongest El Nino events ever recorded, Great Salt Lake was monitored for expected flooding. Starting late May of 1983, the massive snowpack melted fast, and the lake rose around 20 feet, nearly doubling its surface area. I-80 was swamped, downtown Salt Lake was swamped, and in other areas of the state, entire mountainsides washed away. 
Great Salt Lake's flooding during this period is estimated to have caused around $240 million in damages to roads, railroads, private property, and infrastructure such as sewage treatment plants. The conversation in Utah government under Scott Matheson quickly turned to finding a way to dominate nature's natural cycles. Some people thought dyeing the lake a darker color would increase the light absorption and speed up evaporation. One geologist proposed firing a nuclear bomb into the lake or West Desert to create a crater the lake would then fill. Instead, under Bangor's governance in 1987, Utah installed three water pumps, 27 feet long, 17 feet tall, and each weighing 81 tons. They were a practical quick fix and were cheaper than the other options that would need up to 10 years to take effect. These pumps removed 1.3 million gallons of water per minute, feeding the water out into the West Desert. As for the environmental impact of this process, officials said, quote, there's virtually nothing out there, maybe a few lizards and one or two rabbits. As expected, over the next two years, the lake level lowered. The project won the Outstanding Civil Engineering Achievement Award from the American Society of Civil Engineers. But others noted the futility of creating a massive infrastructure project for a problem that now seems so temporary. With Utah's waters diverted away from Great Salt Lake at an increasing rate to support our growing population, it's uncertain whether the pumps will ever be used again. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. I am Dr. Susan Madsen, Director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project, with ideas for becoming more resilient. We often think as confidence is how we look, act, and carry ourselves in front of others. However, true confidence is internal. It is demonstrated in our thought patterns and how we respond to situations. It can also play a pivotal role in building resilience. When you do hard things, you gain confidence. This confidence can also assure you of your ability to conquer the next hard thing that comes along. Or, in other words, it helps you build resilience. Confidence is not just thinking about things. It can only be strengthened by doing. Research has shown that confidence is truly a choice. We can choose to change our assumptions, perspectives, thoughts, and behaviors. Confidence is something we can learn and actively work to develop. Confidence can be developed by taking risks, getting comfortable with failing more often, practicing self-compassion, discovering gifts and strengths, increasing self-understanding, finding your passions and voice, learning and growing continuously, and serving others. Next time you find yourself in a difficult situation, try practicing self-compassion, bouncing back from mistakes and failures, and remembering that you have already made it through many challenging situations in the past, and you can do it again. This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.